Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. I'm sorry that Gabe was sick this morning, but man, Freddie Washington brought some fire for us today. What a joy. I saw some of you moving. I've never seen move before. Well, with the Renovate series and with the idea of renovating our hearts, um, one of the major themes that I didn't get to cover in the series that I've been covering the last few weeks is every one of us deals with disappointment. And you can't have hope and you can't have faith without also risking disappointment. And disappointment is, is actually a chemical reaction We've been talking about this. It's a chemical reaction. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a, a double firing of your brain of both frustration and sadness at the same time. So it's a very, it's a self-protective chemical reaction when people let you down. And so there's no way to stay there. It, it always necessitates a shift. Either you shift into the negative or you shift into the positive, but you're going to shift. You can't stay there. And so what, what I want you to understand is every disappointment requires forgiveness. That without forgiveness, you cannot shift to the positive. And what I want to show you is how Jesus teaches on this. And one of the, the best places to see this is in Luke chapter 17. This is verses three through six. I like it when you read God's word out loud with me. Let's read together. Be on your guard. If a brother or sister sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, what Jesus is saying is that every disciple of his is called to a lifestyle of habitual, perpetual forgiveness. So here's what I'd like you to do is turn to the disciple next to you, point at them, tell them, if you are Jesus' disciple, then he is calling you to a lifestyle of habitual, perpetual forgiveness. So start with me. All right, we can go home now. You forgave, that, you forgave your spouse right then. Or your family member. Did you notice the disciples' response? Increase our faith, or they're saying, give us more faith. Do you know that when they said that, they're rebuking Jesus? They're saying, this is impossible. They're saying, you have not given us enough faith 
to forgive habitually. You've not given us enough faith so that we can, we can respond to every disappointment, so we can respond to every way people offend us with forgiveness. And the Lord's answer is really interesting. It's interesting the disciples rebuke Jesus. But his answer is really interesting because he doesn't say, I'm going to give you more faith. He says, all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, a lot of us get caught up in that aspect where he says, you can say to the mulberry tree, go and throw yourself in the sea or whatever. And we say, wow, if you have enough faith, you can throw the mulberry tree. That's, not what, that's really not what this is about. This is connected to forgiveness. He's saying you already have, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you already have the faith to forgive. But he's saying you have to begin to deploy that faith. It's all about perspective. So let's look a little bit at what Jesus was saying here. First and foremost, do you know what he says? Watch yourself. Now, why is that such an important thing? Well, one writer said it this way. When someone wrongs you or hurts you in some way, automatically we pay great attention to the wrongdoer. Jesus says when someone wrongs you, that, that's when you need to be paying careful attention to yourself. So the premise behind this warning is it's incredibly easy to be blind to an unforgiving spirit and to not see it in yourself. Here, here is what he's saying is, is that the first reaction is to either begin to figure out why the person said what they did or did what they did, begin to kind of talk about their history, talk about their background. We began to focus so much on what the other person has done. I, I don't know how many of you do this, but I tend to do this. When somebody has done something unexpected to me, I want to find somebody else that's mad at them. And then we'll, we'll rehearse stories of how horrible and awful that person is. And if, if I don't have enough stories, I make up stories about how terrible and awful they are. My favorite one that I've ever heard someone do is, is they say, what did they do to you? Oh, it's so awful, I can't even tell you. <laughs> so that leaves wide open to the imagination all kinds of things that this person could have done. But see, what Jesus is saying is that when someone hurts you, when somebody does unexpected things to you, when, when something happens to you that disappoints you, he says, the first place you got to look is at you. He doesn't say watch them. He says watch yourself. That is against everything in our intuition. Because what we're thinking of is how do I protect myself, not how do I watch myself. And so one of the issues that we have is when someone abuses us or mistreats us, even when someone snubs us, what Jesus is saying, how you respond to that is completely up to you. And what he's saying there is how you respond to that will show whether or not you are allowing a bitter root to spring up. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about reactions to offenses, and this is really an important, important truth. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become become defiled. Now, my wife, one of her things is gardening. She loves to garden. And she really loves to watch me garden. <laughs> and I despise it. I mean, I, I, 
I do not like it whatsoever. But I know that in the spring, if I put flowers out, I have a happy wife. And so I put the flowers out. And then you know what she wants me to do? Get rid of the weeds. And I am lazy, and I hate getting rid of the leaves, so I clip them off so you can't see them. And then about, you know, it'll rain or whatever, and pff, weeds are back. They're back. They're back. Here's what the scripture is saying, is that many of us, when we don't do the hard work of forgiveness, what we're doing is clipping the manifestation, but not getting the root. And the root is what then takes up so much space in your heart that it defiles you and it defiles those you love. I mean, have you ever, have you ever noticed that most people are not mean to strangers? This is one of my observations over the years that a lot of people use charm, but charm never works in a marriage. Charm never works with the family. It's just a, a manipulation that eventually the family goes, that doesn't work on us. And so you might see people who are actually very nice to strangers, to co-workers, but their family goes, we really know this person. And they can't really be trusted because what they say is not true or what they do is not true. And so what happens a lot of times, I, when I watch people who are charming, I say no to them just so that their anger will come out. Because you watch, if you ever stop a charmer from doing what they want to do, you will see how angry they are under their charm. Because there's always this thing where many of us have these bitter roots. We have these areas of anger. We have these areas of disappointment. We have unprocessed pain. And we may cover it up with charm. We may cover it up with social graces. We may cover it up with other things. But usually what happens is it comes out with the people who love us the most. It comes out where we're the closest to people. Because we'll hide it from other people, but we can't hide it from those who are not susceptible to our charms. One of the issues that many of us have is we don't, we don't really deal with disappointment. We just push it down. Now, Lisa and I, we're opposites when it comes to disappointment. I'm a fast boil. I'm, I have one of those burners that's high-powered, and I go to boil really quickly, and my anger is, is right on the surface, and my anger goes away quickly. And I, I, I figured everybody was like that till I got married. <laughs> and then I realized my wife is a slow boil. But once it gets boiling, it doesn't necessarily come back to not being boiling. And one time she was really upset with me, and she let me have it. And, and I, I'm like, why are you yelling at me about this? And she goes, if you knew the number of times I've overlooked all your stupid stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I'm really scared now. And it was really interesting to me because what she was saying is what happened in that moment hadn't necessarily made her boil. It was the accumulation of all the things that she had never processed. And now that one thing that was happening had triggered all those months of overlooking, 
all those months of saying nothing, all those months of maybe excusing me, you know, he's tired, he has a lot of stress, there's a lot of responsibility, and all of a sudden on the boil, they all came out. And what you begin to realize, if you if you'll really listen to me today, is every overlooked disappointment is still a root. Every overlooked offense where you said, well, I'll just excuse him this time, is still affecting you. This is why being a habitual, perpetually forgiving person is what Jesus is talking about, not because of what it does to others, but because of what it does to you. So any unforgiven wrong in your life is a root that works into a subterranean way. There are roots that are after an offense have occurred that are often left under the surface, hidden from sight. This is why Jesus is saying you got to watch yourself when you've been wronged or offended. Now, I wanted to look at forgiveness in a fresh way because I've been dealing with some disappointments that have been a little overwhelming to me. And so Tim Keller writes a good bit about this. And one of the notes that he gave is this, and this really helped me. He said, if we understand the effects of the anger and pain that is caused by the offense, it's helpful to unpack the meaning of the Anglo-Saxon word. English comes from Anglo-Saxon words, and the Anglo-Saxon word wrath. Now, for most of us, wrath is when anger has, has reached the boiling point. Where, where you really, really are angry at somebody, there's a wrath towards them. But the same English word, or Anglo-Saxon word, that was used for wrath is the same root for wreath and for wraith. They're all the, they're all the same root. They all have the same, uh, in a sense, the same source. So here's, here's what that old word means. If you allow wrath, you will turn into a wreath. Now, my wife loves wreaths, but I have yet to see a tree that's, that's made in a circle. You have to take the branches, you have to take the boughs, you have to take everything, and you twist it. Take the vines and twist it. You take the metal and you twist it. You can't have a wreath without twisting something from its natural state into its decorative state. So in other words, what the old idea of wrath was is wrath will twist you. It will take what is good about you, it will take what is strong about you, and it will twist it into something unrecognizable. None of us have ever confused a wreath for a tree. A wreath is a twisting of a tree. It is not the tree itself. And so what happens is if you allow wrath to go unprocessed, it will turn you into a wreath. But what is a wraith, which also comes from this word wrath? A wraith is a spirit. So think about this with me. The word wraith is reflective of the spiritual damage that unforgiveness does on your life. Over time, as you start to live in the past and are haunted by the offense, you cannot stop reliving the experience. So what does it mean then? It means that the experience of disappointment, the experience of an offense, the experience of an abuse in your life chases you like a wraith. It becomes a, 
a ghost of your past. In other words, it's great at Christmas to talk about Christmas, spirit of Christmas past, the spirit of Christmas present, spirit of Christmas future, all of those things. Because what happens is when you do not process your disappointment, the spirit of the past begins to invade your present. And this is, this is really the scary part of it. You become less of a person because you're bound to your past. You become, you become a person with less capacity. You become a person who has no room for hope. This is why that passage says, don't let a root of bitterness, because your heart does not have infinite capacity. It has finite capacity. And so if your heart is protecting you from hurt, if your heart is protecting you from the people who've hurt you in your past, you cease to be the person you could be, and you become a wraith in its place. You become a spirit instead of a person who is controlled by your fear, controlled by your past, controlled by your memories, controlled by your weakness, controlled by how other people think about you, controlled by a fear of failure, and then you become a controlling spirit at the same time. So you see, the word wrath or anger, unprocessed anger, will twist you into a wreath or it will reduce you into a wraith. But in no way is it a good thing from you. So in Luke 17, 3 through 4, Jesus is warning people to commit to a forgiving spirit so that your future is not utterly controlled by the past and defiled by the resentment and bitterness, which over time can turn into self-pity, cynicism, and joylessness. Now in this area, one of the biggest issues that I run into in people's psychological well-being is that they protect themselves with cynicism. That there is so much skepticism. That in so many ways, it is so difficult for people in this area to trust anything or anyone. It is amazing to me how many people, even people in ministry, have come up to me and said, Mike, I do not trust anyone. You understand, you cannot protect yourself with cynicism. You cannot have the strength of the joy of the Lord being your strength if cynicism is your defender. You cannot be a skeptic and full out on, on fire with faith for Christ. Because you can't at the same time be your own self-defense and have Christ as your defense. Either Christ is your defender or you are your defender, but it cannot be both. And so, so many of us, you see, have slipped into the spirit of this age and the spirit of this region by saying, I will protect myself by not trusting anybody. And you can always have an excuse for doing so. You don't know how people have treated me. You don't know what my home life was like. You don't know what my childhood was like. Yes, of course, those things are still true. But you've got to begin to realize that cynicism is not your friend. And here's the interesting thing. I have never seen a cynic actually protected from what they're scared of. Why did Bernie Madoff have so much success in New York? And he did it with skeptics. And he did it with cynics. There are people who play on your cynicism, who can get behind your walls, get you to trust them, and then take everything you got. The only trust we have, the only discernment we have 
is not self-interest, but kingdom interest. It's only when you begin to say, I surrender my will, that you can then say, Lord, I trust your will for my life. It is very difficult for many of us to realize how much bitterness has affected us until you see things like cynicism. The other thing is this. If you've been hurt, if you've been, you know, abused, if you've been mistreated in any way, unless you deal with your wrath or you deal with that disappointment, you will find yourself attracted to people who will disappoint you because that's all you know. <laughs> I, I've been a pastor a long time and I, different people have really struck me over the years, but there was this one lady she was about 65 years old. She was a beautiful lady. She was an intercessor. She had gifts from God, but she was as, I shouldn't say as stupid as the day is long, should I, about relationships. I probably shouldn't say it that way. Uh, but when it came to relationships, she, just, she was just attracted to people that would hurt her. So there was a guy in our church. He was about 70 years old, still thought he was in the 1970s. So here's a 70-year-old guy, not attractive, but he had his shirt unbuttoned down to his uh, belly button, had chains and all this stuff on him. And I was like, that is not a good look. It wasn't a good look in the 70s. It's not a good look in your 70s, you know? And, and he was a person that was clearly immature, unable to, to have a relationship. But, and I told her, I said, you're going to get your heart broken with him. And she said, no, I'm going to change him. I said, okay. So she went after him. She came to me later. She goes, he's broken my heart. I said, what did I tell you? It's like a Dr. Phil moment. She says, I'm going to write him a letter and I'm going to break up with him. And he, he brought me the letter. It was eight pages long. I said, I break up with you as one sentence. But it was really, I break up with you unless, and then she had eight pages of demands. And I looked at her and I said, you're manipulating. I said, he's already shown that he can't live up to these demands. Just because you put him in writing doesn't mean he's going to do it. And I said, what you're, what you're showing is not the problem with him. You're showing the problem with you. And I said, the only one in this relationship that you can change is you. And you know, she listened. And, uh, and she began to, began to process her anger and her hurt from men. She began to process how she put up defenses, but also how she used charm and how she used flirting See, Southern women can flirt and fry. That's their two greatest gifts. Just making sure you're listening. That was just too good. I'm sorry. But she started processing her stuff. And you know what happened? A, a man came along who really loved her, who was in ministry. And they had a ministry together at the, in the later years of their life. Not because, you know, not because she, you know, there were, <laughs> she finally figured out there were good men in the world, 
but finally she was attracted to good men instead of bad men. Do you understand what this passage is saying? It's saying when you allow the root of bitterness, it not just defiles you, but it brings defiled people around you. And it defiles those who actually love you because they can't get close to you. Are you tracking with me? So disappointment then, the unfortunate reality of living in a broken world is that all of us get snubbed and mistreated at different times of our lives. You're occasionally going to face abuse, even injustice. The question is, how are you going to keep it from changing you into a wreath or turning you into a wraith? And one of the areas that's really probably the most important is how have you dealt with your own parents? And one of the biggest roots of, of, of bitterness in most of our life is about our family. And one writer said it this way, if you cannot forgive your parents for the things they have done, it distorts you, it twists you, it changes you. It distorts your whole attitude toward authority figures, and it can distort your relationship with your own children. See, roots of bitterness don't go out just because a new generation comes along. They actually get magnified in the next generation unless they're processed. And so many of us can look and say, why did I have so much trouble in my career? Usually it's because I didn't deal with my anger and my unforgiveness with my parents. Why have I had so much difficulty in relationships? Well, because I'm trying to fix an unfinished business with my father wounds with a man that I'm trying to marry. Or I'm trying to fix my parental issues with a person that I tried to marry. And, and all of us have probably made vows that some way I'll never be like my parents. And then in parenting, you go, you're going to do that because I say so. And I said, I would never say that to my kids. And yet we do it. You see, unless, are you hearing me in this? Unless you have dealt with the anger, unforgiveness, disappointment that you have with your parents, it will not only affect you, but it affects the generations that follow you. Until my son was about 13 years old, I had no idea how to parent him. And, and uh, I was driving with him this summer, and he and I were talking. And I, I realized instead of college fund, I should have had therapy funds for my kids. But I was having this conversation with my son, and we were talking about particularly his middle school years where I messed up the most. And I, I began to talk to him about why, in a way that I messed up so bad, and I, I began to talk to him about the motivation, and all of a sudden I realized I had felt so much responsibility for his behavior. I felt so responsible for him turning out all right that I took my fears and I took my, my need to command and control him, and I messed up his mind. I messed up his life in many ways. And he and I were sitting there and talking, and I, I'm asking him to forgive me. But in a lot of ways, for the first time, I, I really saw what I had done so clearly. Because not only are we the disappointed, but we're often the disappointers. And I was able to talk with him, and he and I cried, which is bad to do when you're on a road on a highway at night. But we were crying together, and forgive, he was forgiving me. And we were talking through, and, and, and I think for the first time he said, I know what you were trying to do, Dad. And I know you had 
you had this desire that I would grow up to be this certain man and I would have this kind of character and all that. And I said, yeah, but son, I used control to try to do it. And instead of doing it, it hurt you. And you begin to realize that, you know, if you can't, in some ways, if you can't say what you've done, then the, then the forgiveness piece is somewhat superficial. And, and, and hear, hear me well. We're going to talk about in a minute that you need to forgive from the heart anyone and everyone. But Jesus in this passage is actually talking about the need for reconciliation. Do you know what he says? If they, if they do you wrong, if they offend you, and then they repent... Now, repenting isn't saying, I'm sorry I did it. Repenting is recognizing what I did, how it hurt you, and and making a decision, I'm not going to do it again. See, what many of us don't realize is Jesus has a different, in a way, a different strategy for dealing with broken relationships. And part of that strategy is that person has to actually own what they've done. And they have to actually see that what they did was wrong and then make steps to make it right. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness only takes one. When you forgive someone else, you're doing it for you, not for them. When you're reconciling with somebody else, it's because they have realized that what they've done is not right and they're making a commitment to do otherwise. You see, he's talking about a different thing than just forgiveness. He's talking about a person who actually repents. And so if, if your question today is, do I, just, do I just forgive everybody and do I just act like it never happened? No. You forgive them because that's for you and that's between you and God. But when it comes to reconciliation, Jesus isn't calling you to close your eyes and say, they never did that to me. Jesus is saying, keep your eyes wide open for when they repent. And then when they repent, then enter into trust relationship with them. Here's one of the things you have to understand. Trust is always earned. Trust is never given without without a person performing, without them earning, deserving that trust. You don't trust God just like, I trust you. No, you trust him because he's proven himself to be faithful. You trust other people because they've proven that their word means something to you. When somebody in your life tells you they're going to do something and never does it, and you keep trusting them, that's just you. And that's you not realizing, this person has shown to me that they can't be trusted, and yet I keep doing it. Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is saying, when they repent then you forgive them. You got really quiet. Are you thinking about what I'm saying? Okay, will you just think this with me? Forgiveness is one thing. Reconciliation is another. To be reconciled, the other person has to understand what they've done, at least to some degree. So I believe that that moment with my son was very powerful and very meaningful because I understood what I had done to him And he was able to forgive me, not just by saying, well, I love you, Dad, so I forgive you. But rather, he was able to say, I see what you were doing, and you've admitted it, and I can forgive you because of it. Tracking with me? Is this too much for you? Because I'm doing all the work. (laughs) So 
So what does it mean to forgive then? And what does forgiveness in action look like? Well, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes a little further than this one. He's, he's saying, when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone or anyone has anything against you, he says, forgive them. He actually says, leave your offering and go and be reconciled to them. So what, what the Bible is teaching in terms of healthy spirituality is as soon as someone wrongs you, your tendency, instead of watching yourself, is to then pick up on all the dissimilarities between you and that person. You know, have you ever noticed that when someone, someone lies to you, they are liars. When you lie, well, it's complicated. You know, there are, whole lots, of, there are lots of reasons why I did that. I'm basically a good person. You understand, it's the same action, but suddenly I have, they're so dissimilar to me. And as a matter of fact, many times when people, when people do something, our first response is, I would never do that to another person. You'd never catch me acting like that. And so we immediately go into self-justification so that we can vilify the person that hurt us. And one of the scholars, Miroslav Volf, who is a brilliant theologian, he wrote this. He said, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. This is a powerful statement because if you're really honest, when somebody hurts you, you don't immediately think, I'm just like this person. You immediately think, I'm nothing like this person, and they deserve to be punished. Now, Jesus tells a story in Luke 17. It's kind of a hard story to understand unless you understand it in terms of forgiveness. He says, there was a master who had servants. Now, this story is a very interesting one because it's not slavery that we're talking about here. We're talking about indebted servants. In other words, these were people who owed a person a debt they could not repay. So instead of going to prison, they then bound themselves to this master to pay off their debts. So they're not slaves, they're indebted. And every single thing they are doing is a work to pay off their debts. And so Jesus tells this parable, and then he says, having worked all day in the field for the master, when they come home, does the master say, sit down, let me make you dinner, and I'll serve you? No, he says. The master sits down, and the servants all go to the kitchen and make the dinner for the master, and they serve the master, and they don't complain because it's part of their obligation. Now, why does he tell that story when he's come as the master, and he's come to pay off the debt? Why does he tell this story about this master getting waited on by these servants who are in debt? Well, there's a, there's a very specific reason. Because the minute you think someone is in debt to you, you become the master. They become the servant. And what Jesus is saying here is no matter what anyone has done to you, you are never the master. You are always the indebted servant. 
And so when you treat them like you're the master and they're the servant, you are forgetting your place. But bigger than that, you're forgetting what the master's done for you. On the cross, Scripture says that the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all and that by his stripes we are healed. So here's here's what this is saying. That when Jesus said it is finished, he used a Greek word there, tetelestai. Makes me feel like I'm stuttering when I say it. He used a Greek word that actually is a word of, of finance. And it actually means the debt is paid. So the question you see when someone wrongs you is does your heart say, my debt's being paid is bigger than the wrongs that are done to me? Or are the wrongs done to me bigger than the fact my debt has been paid? Because if I, if I in some way begin to think, well, my debt's paid, but you've got a debt with me, then I don't really realize what it cost for my debt to be paid. I don't realize what the master had to do to pay my debt. And so now I want to be the master over the people who hurt me. And so that's why we get twisted. That's why the ghost of the past chases us. So that's the first key. And, and I, I do like to, to do it this way. Have you ever... Uh, our friend Alan Jones here is an artist. He likes to do caricatures. Whenever someone does a caricature, they take, they take a certain aspect of your facial characteristics or your body, and they emphasize that above everything else. When you get a caricature done, it's usually pretty funny. You don't look pretty, but you look funny. And everybody kind of laughs. Well, this is what happens when we fail to identify with one another, is we begin to emphasize something that so outstrips everything else about the person. You're a liar. You're a cheat. You're a thief. You can't be trusted. And so suddenly we have stepped out of the realm of being sinners and they have stepped out of the realm of being humans. Now, the second way that, that we forgive is even in some ways trickier than the first. You notice Jesus uses this measure of economy. Even in the Lord's prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, What this is saying is that every time someone disappoints you, a debt is incurred. Now, let me illustrate this in a a simple way. If somebody comes into your house and they break your lamp, you can forgive them, but somebody's got to pay for the lamp. And if you truly forgive them, you pay for the lamp. Now, If they buy you the lamp, there's no forgiveness necessary because they paid the price. But in order for the debt caused by breaking the lamp to be taken away, somebody's got to pay. And so when we forgive, we are saying, I will pay for what is broken. I will pay. Now, here's the thing about that. Forgiveness is not living in disregard of past wrongs. That's why you're not saying, well, you know, they were, they were sick that day or 
You know, they got a lot of stress in their lives. It's not disregarding that or excusing that. If you just excuse people's wrongs, all you're doing is just pushing that root deeper in you. So it's rather forgiveness emerges from a decision to overcome resentment and vengefulness, mastering the anger and humiliation of those most poisonous of attitudes and state of mind. So every time someone disappoints you, it creates a debt, an internal debt. You sense that they owe you. And the currency that we have for the debt that we feel on the inside is pain. So we want, we want them to pay with the pain that they have caused us or the pain that they have wronged us with. And so when we refuse to be those who forgive, when we refuse to pay that inward debt, what happens is we begin to demand the debt be paid. So we do things like screaming at people and making them feel horrible. We, we might even say, let me destroy them professionally. I mean, I, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but there are some people, unlike you, who as soon as a name is mentioned, they'll go, man, you really don't know the half about that person. And they ruin them uh, in terms of relationships, professionally, and other things, through gossip, through slander. And guess what? A lot of times, if people aren't, people aren't, <laughs> if people aren't mad enough at them, you can make up a little bit more about them in order to make them as mad as you are about them. Or there are some of you, you've never yelled at anybody, you've never ruined anybody professionally, but you can be very cold and distant. You can say, I'll never trust anybody. And there are many of us who use withdrawal to manipulate people and to protect ourselves. So as we look at this idea, in other words, every single disappointment creates an internal debt. The question then is, what are you going to do with that debt, because it has to be paid. Now, you can say, I excuse you, but that's not paying the debt. You can say, well, there are reasons why they are the way they are, but that's not paying the debt. What that's doing is making the roots go down deeper and deeper, and they're going to come out. Maybe they'll boil out, and it'll be over something stupid, but it'll boil out. So the question is, how do I deal with this in a way that's habitually, perpetually forgiving people? Well, again, it goes back to the heart. It goes back to what I really think matters. And here's, what I, here's how this helped me. I, I, I've had a disappointing two years. I can't believe that last uh, summer ago in 2021, I'm standing up here on a Sunday morning and I have a heart attack. Now, I mean, on the outside, if, if you look at me, I'd say, you know, God, God can handle anything. But on the inside, I had a debt that said, how can I get a heart attack when I'm preaching? Just seems like that should be a safe space. Just seems like, you know, there should be some covering that that doesn't happen. And then I go into the hospital and I, I lose my sight and my right eye through a stroke. And I'm like, how did that happen? They're trying to fix my heart and they broke my eye? I mean, and, I'm just, and then in the midst of that, people I loved and trusted started slandering and gossiping about me and saying all manner of things about me, and it broke my heart. So I've got a broken heart biologically, I have a broken heart emotionally, and I have a broken eye all at one time. And I'm like, I'm just doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing. Now, I can tell you that there are things that were happening at the same time that were good, but good things don't cast out bad things. You have to deal with the bad things as bad things. I love 
The New York way is, is when you say, I had a heartache. Well, you could have died. I lost, you, I lost sight. You could have lost sight in both eyes. You should be thankful. I hate that kind of thinking because one, all it does is push down what you're really feeling, which means it becomes a root of bitterness. And then this summer, we thought we were, we thought we had seen such a victory over cancer, and now we're battling and saying, cancer, you're not going to have a foothold again in Lisa's life. And it's exhausting. And again, relationships fall apart, and all kinds of things happen. And what I'm saying is, you can't just go, well, it could be worse, because all that does is make a root that will come up in all kinds of ways and keep you from joy. You can't protect your heart with coping mechanisms. So what I would suggest to you, this is what I do, is I start making a list of the debts. I write them out. These are the ways I felt an internal debt. This, this person treating me like this, this is what it made me feel. I even, I even said, God, I was disappointed this happened. I was disappointed this happened. And so what I realized was I was in some ways having, tr having trust issues with God because I was disappointed with my circumstances. And as I did this, something powerful began to happen. Because once I get it out and I begin to speak about it and I talk about it, now it's not a root deep down in a, in a kind of subterranean way. Now it's up into the light and I'm saying, wait a minute. Yes, I have these disappointments. Yes, I have these struggles. But what matters to my heart is what it costs my Savior to pay my debt. And here are all of my sins. Here are all my places I've disappointed. Here are all the places that I've done what others have done to me. And underneath all of that is the precious love of Christ who said, on him was laid the iniquity of us all. And what I, what I say to you is the debts are real, but his forgiveness is more real. The debts are real, but what he paid to set you free is more powerful, is more impactful. You don't have to forgive people because you love them. You don't have to forgive them because they deserve it. You forgive them because the cross has made you free. Will you stand with me? Now, here's what I want you to do. Will you close your eyes? I know we're running a little bit late. They'll get, they'll fuss at me a little bit after this, but they'll have to forgive me. So. <laughs> All right, so I'd like you to close your eyes. First, I'd like you to put your left hand out. Just put your left hand out. I want you to try this out with me. This is what's been helpful to me. As I start with this. Lord, I place all the ways that I've sinned against you, that I've sinned against others, all my iniquities, my transgressions, all my faults, my failings, and I place them in this hand. All right, now let that, let that settle in, that, that you are putting all that you've done into your hand right now. Now, I want you to hear what the Savior says. He says, 
The debt is paid. The debt is paid. Now, you, you may not even be in touch with how, how heavy this burden is yet. The older I get, the more I realize how heavy this burden is. Things that I thought weren't sin really were. I used to try to, I used to, try to show a life with less sin. Now I want a life that's totally free. And I, I think when you, when you start getting honest, you go, wow, I don't just sin against the Lord seven times a day. I sin against them so often, and yet the debt is paid. Would you say that with me? The debt is paid. Say it one more time. The debt is paid. Now, I'm hoping that you're seeing what it cost Jesus to pay that debt. Now, I want you to pick up your right hand and just, just lift your right hand up. Now, would you say this? I put in my right hand all the sins that have come against me. My disappointments, the offenses, rejection, abuses, everything that has come against me, I place in my right hand. I'm not saying you can get in touch with it all, but I think you can get in touch with some of it. You can't live in this world and not be disappointed. I'm asking you to bring the bitter root up. I'm asking you to not let it be subterranean. I'm asking you to pull it out. Not just chop off what's manifesting, but all of it. Now, here's a very simple thing. If his paying your debt is real to you, then take your left hand and put it on top of your right. And say this with me. Since my debts are paid, I forgive those who have debts against me. And so as you put the two hands together, would you just say this with me? Debt free. Say it again. Now remember what I said about reconciliation. We're not re reconciling with people right now. We're getting you free. The truth is, if you're not free, you can't be reconciled. But if you're free, you can begin to be reconciled deeply, wonderfully, intimately. By his stripes, we are healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, it's almost Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say, if you have money, give it to us. God bless you.